We are in the middle of a, not in the middle, we're at the beginning of a series on marriage. I think we're going to do about six weeks. This is week number two. Marriage matters. Double entendre. Things that concern marriage. Marriage matters. And marriage matters. So uh, it does. And uh, it's significant in, uh, I think, in God's intentions and designs from the foundations of the world. Uh, The whole meaning and purpose of it woven into the fabric of creation and making us male and female. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew 19 this morning, verses 1 to 6, talking about oneness. As I get started, though, I'm also going to do one caveat uh, on last week's sermon. I have one or two things that I want to make clear coming from that. But let's, uh, let's read the first six verses of Matthew chapter 19. Hear then the word of God. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And the large crowds were following him and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and they tested him, asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered them and he said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and he shall hold fast or cleave unto his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great love for us. That you are God who speaks and you are not silent. That you tell us the truth, you reveal it to us, you show us the way. Father, I pray that this morning you would speak into our lives about your intention for uh, marriage and relationship. Father, would you help us that we might bring honor and glory to you in the way that we're married. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So one clarification from last week when we talked about covenant, marriage as covenant, and I tried to paint biblically uh, a strong and beautiful picture of God's intention for the covenant of marriage. Um, Having painted it such a strong picture, though, you could walk away thinking perhaps that it could never be broken. So I wanted to take just a moment, two minutes this morning, to say that the covenant can be broken. And that even if one person is keeping covenant, it doesn't mean the other person will. And that there are ways that just one person can break covenant. So let me name just three circumstances that can break covenant, and then an exhortation for you to, if you are in a position where there are difficulties in your marriage, and you might wonder about whether it is moving that way or is that direction, uh, an exhortation to talk to the leadership, to talk to the session. So let me read for you, and I'll use just as the the foundation of this, because it, for me, is going to be the summary, is in the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 24, paragraph 6, it summarizes it this way. It says, although the corruption of man may be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God has joined together. We see it here in the beginning of this passage when the Pharisees come up to him, testing him, asking, is it lawful to divorce for any cause? Right? And so the sinful heart is often looking for any undue arguments 
to put asunder what God has joined together. And then it says this, and I think this is exactly what the Bible says, which is yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or the civil magistrate is cause sufficient for dissolving the bond of marriage. Wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it should not be left to their own wills or discretion in their own case. Let me just unpack that real quickly in three biblical, what I believe, reasons, and then the exhortation. And the first is the first one is that Jesus clearly says uh, that adultery is grounds for divorce. That uh, that he says in in in. Um, he doesn't say it here, but he says uh, that, that except for infidelity, except for adultery, that the marriage should not and could not be broken. And so adultery definitely is laid out as one of the grounds when that takes place. It doesn't mean that a marriage has to divorce. There are many marriages that are saved after this kind of disaster, um, but it is grounds and, and is gives cause where, where divorce can be pursued. It's not required but it is allowed. The second reason that he gives, is he says, not yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as cannot be remedied by the church. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, where Paul says that if the unbelieving spouse leaves, let them leave. And in such a case, you are not bound. And so if, if you are abandoned in your marriage, uh, that is also grounds for the uh, marriage to be dissolved. If they leave, let them leave. You are not bound in that case. And so uh, adultery or desertion can dissolve the bond of marriage. But the third is an application of desertion, and it is the conviction uh, that many of us have that somebody can desert a marriage without actually leaving the house. Um, and this is a tricky one, and there are some who don't want to even have that conversation because people, if they are left to their own wills and their own discretion, I think can abuse that idea. But we would say that there are situations of abuse that can exist within a home, whether physical and otherwise, um, that can't be tolerated, that there should be some form of separation immediately. It's criminal behavior. Physical abuse is criminal behavior. We believe that every legal recourse should be taken. Um, and that a marriage, uh, I, I think that, you know, involving the leadership again, it becomes grounds where they are, without actually leaving the house, deserting the covenant of marriage. And a pattern of abuse can be grounds. But I would urge you with this and the exhortation that it follows up, that though there are legitimate grounds for marriage, God has a very strong, he hates divorce, and even though he hates it, he has allowed for it in certain circumstances, but as, as the confession says, I think is, is again wise and correct, that you should not be left to your own wills and discretion in your own case. In other words, the leadership of the church should be involved. That if you reach that stage where you think it's going that direction or your marriage is having that significant of difficulty or you're contemplating it in your own heart, you need to approach your elder or the session. The session here um, would, would be glad to become involved. We need to become involved if it moves in that direction. Um, that, that in our own case, we cannot be subject. I mean, we are subjective. We cannot be objective in determining whether there are truly biblical grounds. Um, you should have your session support for whatever you do in such a case. So you need to work with the leadership 
to explore whether there are grounds, to explore help if it, need, if it is needed, separation, which is possible. God hates divorce, but he's allowed and provided for it in certain situation in this fallen and broken world. Talk to your leadership if you are in such a position. Matthew chapter 19, shifting gears in, he does touch on this here, that uh, what God has joined together, let not man separate, unless, as he says, in certain, um, and, he, and he gets to this down in, in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed for, for divorce, and he says, but I say to you, whoever divorces um, his wife, except for sexual immorality, uh, is breaking the covenant. Um, but here he, he delves in as he talks about marriage. When he's asked the question about divorce and putting that aside, there is a covenant. It can be broken, but he's asked this question about divorce. And when he is, Jesus goes to the heart of what a marriage is. And when he talks about divorce, it's not just in the sense of, well, the, you know, the rules that are there. He talks about the essence of what, what a marriage is and what is intended to be by God. And so when he's asked this, this question, he's being tested, which they come to do many times on a number of different issues when they think, oh, he'll never get this one, you know, we'll, we'll trap him here. So they ask him this question, hoping that he will put his foot in his mouth. Um, and Jesus quotes the Old Testament, have you not read, verse 4, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and therefore a man will leave his father and his mother, and he will hold fast, he will cleave unto his wife, and then the two shall become one flesh. And then he adds his own conclusion then, that's quoting the Old Testament, quoting Genesis. In verse 6 then, he says, so, therefore, and Jesus gives his own uh, uh, commentary on it, his own conclusion, and he says, they, therefore, they are no longer two, but one. One flesh. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus says the essence of marriage, as I read it, is oneness. It's a made-up word, I think. But I think it's a word that describes what he's trying to get at here when he says that you'll leave your father and your mother, you're going to form something new, you're going to hold fast to your wife, and the two shall become one. And sometimes in a wedding, we do unity candles, although these days sometimes there's actually like a unity sand thing that they do. I don't know if you've seen that one. You know, so the unity candle, you take the two, the husband and the wife, and they light the center candle, you know, and then the two have become one. Sometimes you blow out those candles. Um, and I think there's something to that. The two have become one, and that center candle represents the marriage. Um, the picture that something new has been created, that something unified has come into existence, where there had been two separate things, now there is something that has been joined together, intermingled, lives in a new, profound, and permanent way have been joined. And so the covenant, when, when he says the two... Uh, will cleave together and become one. When they come and make a covenant, what we're doing is we're building, in a sense, the walls of Fort Knox around a treasure that, that exists at the center of your marriage. And I hope you see it that way in a picture. The covenant that you make, and the reason we, we, we take those vows and promises is to build a wall of protection around something precious at the center of the marriage. The friendship, the relationship, 
that God has given you. This new oneness and connectedness exists at the center of a marriage. And, it, and, it, and as he speaks in this passage, he, does, he, he mentions the, uh, they become one flesh. And many focus there, so let me touch on that and, um, and, and I think lay out that the, this new connectedness that exists has a unique physical component. One that, uh, though it is a component of the marriage, is, is uh, meant to be so much more than that part of it. To become one flesh... This physical oneness speaks of a sexual union that is reserved for the marriage covenant, right? And so it is the one relationship on the planet, the one relationship that God has created where that physical union is reserved for and is to take place and is a beautiful gift that takes place in the safety of the covenant, the walls that were built around it to protect it. It belongs to the relationship like a gift, But we miss the fullness of Jesus' teaching if we fail to understand the the relational purpose of the union and to look far beyond the fact that 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 physical union is reserved for this relationship. And sometimes when we're we're young, we're so focused on the day when we will be married and we will be able to enjoy the good gifts that God has given us that we forget and miss the idea that there's so much more at the center of a marriage. The relational union that God intends that is meant to be an expression and a culmination of other forms of intimacy. There's a relational intimacy, an emotional intimacy, a spiritual intimacy that that God intends for marriage, and the physical intimacy is the culmination of the expression of the other intimacies that we are intended to, to share. Oneness includes that relational, spending time together, doing things together, sharing life together, partnering together, that spiritual uh, union, that spiritual intimacy of worshiping together, of learning together, of, of, of speaking of spiritual things and encouraging one another spiritually and praying together in a, an emotional intimacy of the sharing of our innermost selves and our thoughts and our feelings and, um, and growing close together in every level of relationship. And these other intimacies, the spiritual, the emotional, the relational, prepare the way for a fuller physical intimacy that God intends in marriage. And if this is true, then let me give you two or three applications immediately right off the bat. That if all these other intimacies are are part and parcel of of the intimacy that God intends and actually prepare us for it and can lead to it, then if you are young, if you're unmarried, you have to be careful not to foster deep relational, emotional, and other forms of intimacy with another person too soon and too fast. Sometimes our young people, I think, get carried away. And they know they're, you know, we're not going to get married. You know, we're in high school or wherever we are. We know we're not going to get married for years and years or most likely, and, and yet they go too intense, too deep relationally. Levels of intimacy that we cultivate with one another can lead to and prepare for the physical. I saw it all the time as I work with college students, uh, right? And so we're right at that, that point of time. I spent seven years in full-time college ministry, and you would watch these students who would find each other, you know, how many you know, find their spouse at college or that kind of thing, and they start spending time together, day and night. 
They would sometimes they would just disappear. We would talk about that, you know, oh, he started dating. Oh, that's where he went. Like, you know, they just disappear. Where are they? They're, they're spending time together in every context, you know, and then one of them will come to me and say, you know, we're struggling with our physical relationship. You know, we were in her room. It's three o'clock in the morning. We had been talking for several hours. I'm like, you're in her room? It's three in the morning? You've been talking for three or four hours, building this intimacy with each other, and then you wonder that you got to the place where you're going to struggle physically? You know, it's like, a, it's like a relational and emotional intimacy are like a train that picks up speed, right? The closer you, you, you build relationship, man and a woman, um, and, and the more intimacy you begin to build relationally and even, even spiritually and emotionally, it's like a train that begins to pick up speed. And at some point it picks up, you know, it's going 90 miles an hour and you think you're going to be able to stop it. And, and, and people will struggle at that level. So we just say, back it up. Right? We know that is reserved for marriage, and we have to be careful how fast and how deep we go too early. You know, high school is probably you know, not the time, or college, you have to be careful to put some boundaries around your dating that will help protect you from the struggle that you will have. And married people, let me give you on two fronts with this. You know, number one, it means we have to foster spiritual, emotional, and relational intimacy with our spouses, because it fosters and leads to and prepares us for a physical relationship. And what happens in so many marriages is that, that we stop focusing on and cultivating a, a relationship together, and then we find that the whole marriage begins to suffer and that we're not as close as we used to be, um, and physically we begin to struggle in that way. There, these levels of intimacies, they prepare for it, and so we need to cultivate them. And so men hear me woman generally does not want to be physically intimate with a man she is not emotionally close to. It's just one of those facts. So men, hear me, it behooves us to cultivate emotional and spiritual and relational intimacy with our spouses, recognizing their needs. For them, it's not just a physical thing. It, it, it is so much more. It incorporates the whole relationship into it, and it leads to and fosters and all hangs together, and a man doesn't understand this as often or not, and he thinks that the physical stands apart in this, in, in this little corner and can just be you know, turned on and off at, at will, but for a woman, it isn't a light switch, where for often men, it is. So smart men will invest in closeness with their wives, not just selfishly, but to meet her needs and to fully understand how our wives are wired. But secondly, men and women for us who are married, I would say this, a second application of all this is hear me, the mistake that so many of us make is like the young people who foster too fast and too soon levels of intimacy that cause them to struggle deeply, that we as married people sometimes do this that men and women who are married begin to cultivate relationships with people outside the marriage, somebody at work, somebody who you met, and you begin to text one another, or you begin to talk with one another, or you have lunch together, or you stand in, in the hallway and talk with one another, and, and you think it's innocent, and you say, well, you know, they're really hurting right now, I'm just trying to help them, or, you know, their marriage is struggling, and how many times have we reached out to somebody... Do not, with somebody of the opposite sex, try to help their marriage by yourself. Um, why? Because you begin to cultivate relational intimacy with people in some of the most intimate parts of their life. 
people often will just say, I, I can't tell you, I've never heard of anybody who said, I set out to commit adultery. I think one in a thousand. All of them say it just happened. The train was going 90 miles an hour. It didn't just happen. In other words, relational and emotional intimacy had been cultivated. Often innocently, I just want to help them. I just want to know them. I just want to. But we have to be so careful of the kind of intimacy that we develop with people. Uh, and men and women have to be cautious. Nobody sets out for it. And it doesn't just happen. We have to be smart about protecting our hearts and not giving away intimacies that belong to our spouses, to other people, because it will confuse things very quickly. I've heard some argue purely for the contractual nature of marriage, that after all, in the old days, it is simply arranged you know, that the covenant of marriage as we start talking about the friendship that's at the core of it. And I believe the essence of a marriage is a covenanted friendship, right? It's a covenanted friendship. And it's always what people bring to the altar, isn't it? This friendship, this relationship that you have cultivated and started and you bring it to the altar and say, I want it to continue for the rest of my life, right? I want to be with them and spend time with them and share myself with them. I have a relationship and it's so much more than this idea of the two becoming one flesh. John 15, 15 some of the richest truths revealed in the New Testament about our union with Christ and our relationship with Christ. And we know that Paul says it as he describes that union between a man and a woman and the, 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 the relationship that they have, the love that a husband should have for his wife. And he says, and I'm talking about Christ and his church. And he gives this parallel between Christ and his church and our marriages. And that intimacy that he is describing that throughout the New Testament, I think he gives us windows into he says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. That's a contractual relationship, the servant and the master, purely contractual. He says, but I don't, I don't call you servants. I have called you my friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. Right? There's an intimacy there. There's a sharing there that all that I've heard from my father I've made unto you. You're not my servant in my house. You are my partner, and I'm sharing all of my heart, all of my understanding with you. There is a, an intention here for a union, an intimacy that would keep us and protect us and nurture us for a lifetime. An intimacy like John, Jesus describes in John 15, he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He's describing the two have become one, isn't he? You're not a branch by itself. It's not just these segmented branches. He says, if you abide in me and I abide in you, if we cleave one unto another, we shall no longer be two, but one. And the intimacy of that relationship that Jesus describes, I think is the intimacy that he designs and desires for us. In Ephesians 5, 28 and 29, Paul says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. I've always wondered as I've read this 
text. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can go with that. And just thinking about what Jesus is saying here as a, as a husband loving his wife, and it says he should love her as his own body, that he who loves his wife loves himself. That sounds selfish in some ways. Uh, I think it just is de- describing the truth that the two have become one in such a way that when you love your wife, you're loving yourself, that you are one uh, flesh, so to speak. And so her interest should be your interest. Her concern should be your concerns. Her fears should be your fears. Her desire should be your desire. If it matters to her, it should matter to you. And that you matter to each other. There is an intimacy. There's a oneness that, that, that almost is, is physical, not sexual, but, but physical. You love your wife. You love yourself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it. Just as Christ does his church. And so he says this relationship as Christ loves and nourishes and cherishes his church, so a husband should love and nurture and cherish his wife, right? It speaks to an intimacy. It's what, it's what we bring to marriage. We just forget <laughs> that it's what we brought to marriage. It's why you wanted to get married. There's profound friendship and intimacy, emotional, spiritual, and physical, the beating heart of a marriage. So let me just run through some quick applications for oneness. The oneness that God intends includes a profound sharing of spiritual things, right? And so, I mean, a couple things come out of this, that it's not just emotional and relational, but your marriages should have this spiritual component to them. We did a survey back in the spring, and those of you who were here, if you remember taking it, uh, it's anonymous, but one of the things that, that... that shocks me at some level is the number of couples that don't pray together. One of the questions on there was, how often do you pray with your wife, with your spouse? And it was very infrequently. And I would encourage you, I guess this was one application to say one of the forms of intimacy is that we should be praying together in, in, in the morning before you break and go your separate ways, at night before you go to bed. I don't know when it is to talk about the things that matter, you know, your children, your work, things that are hard, your family, you know, and for us, and even to pray for our marriage. You know, your wife, you know, should hear you pray for your marriage, that God would protect it and strengthen it and protect your hearts and pray together. There's this oneness of spiritual things that that should come, and I believe the most intimate form of that is when a husband and wife pray together. So I encourage you, not as as a burden, but as an adventure to begin to pursue a prayer life with your spouse. But secondly, I would also say, Paul says this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I don't think I have a slide for this. 2 Corinthians 6.14. He says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That is, don't be spiritually uh, unequally yoked. Um, And we see this as often as he says to do this in the Lord, that marriage is in the Lord. And so that we should marry only those who share our faith. Now, this applies, this passage, 2 Corinthians 6, it does have to do with business. There's an application there of being careful if you and a partner go into business and to be unequally yoked with someone who doesn't share your values for honesty, you know, for work ethic, for all these things that often come as spiritual things, but also in a marriage. How can we, you know, as I just encourage you to pray together, you know, to be unequally yoked with someone who doesn't pray. How can we have that spiritual? How can a wife submit to her husband as unto the Lord if the husband doesn't know the Lord? How can a husband love his wife if Christ loves the church if she does not know Christ and is not part of his church? 
How can we spend a lifetime growing spiritually in relationship with Christ if one does not know him? And so I believe that, 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 that one, we should marry in the Lord, and then two, that that spiritual component should be central to our relationship. And I know, I don't know what it is. I can just tell you this. It, 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 it fascinates me that, that that would be so hard between a husband and wife to pray together. And whether it's just something we haven't thought about or something that we try to do. But you understand that when you go to do stuff and you find it awkward and you find resistance, you know that's a spiritual battle. That the flesh resists the spirit. And the spirit resists the flesh. And the spirit would drive us together where two or three are gathered together in prayer. There I am with them. And where are our two gathered and, and Christ is there with them in prayer if, if at the heart of our marriages. Second, I would say this, you bring something beautiful and fragile when you come to the altar. One of the privileges of being a pastor is I do weddings, and I've done literally dozens of weddings since I've become a pastor, and done the vow, stood and, and, and well, first sat and done marriage counseling with them over five or six weeks. I typically don't do a wedding unless I've counseled and, you know, to have them go through the vows. And one of the things that is, is fun is to see the couple come in and sit on my couch who say, we want to get married. Right? There are just stars in their eyes. You know, there is nothing but rose-colored glasses. You know, there's nothing but this. It's a beautiful thing. I think it is a right thing. You know, one of the things I do is try to, you know, shape their expectations more realistically. You know, but, but not too hard. I don't want to do it too strong because there's something beautiful and fragile that, they have, that they're bringing and saying, we, we want to covenant this. Right? We want this to last forever forever, for a, you know, for a lifetime. We, you know, and, and we sit and we talk through what it is they have and what they're doing. It's, but here's the thing. It is beautiful, but it is fragile. At the wedding, we put the walls of Fort Knox around it. We covenant it. There's still this treasure that's at the center. Promise to nurture it. When you say, I promise to love you. The Lord takes us home. I'm promising to nurture and to protect that thing, that treasure at the heart of a marriage. I'll tell you this, though. Fort Knox is rarely breached from the outside. And, and, and the, the marriage, it's, it's usually not from the outside that this treasure gets lost. It's usually lost from the inside. It withers from neglect. Right? It withers from a lack of, 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 of deliberate nurturing and protecting. It's something that withers because we take it for granted. And so it shrivels on the vine. So in this, as we keep applying, in the wedding we declared, I declare, and I often will tell them this, on the wedding day I'm going to declare you're no longer two but one. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's, in a sense, a legal declaration and a spiritual declaration, a biblical covenant declaration that the two have cleaved together and you are no longer two but one. But I'll tell you this, you better spend the rest of your life figuring out what that means and realizing it. And when I say realizing it, I don't mean like it just in your head, but like realizing it, the reality of it in your life. I've always compared it to coming to Christ. I was 18 when I came to Christ and I put my faith in Christ and, and I took him you know, as Lord and Savior, bowed the knee to King Jesus and, and, and gave my life to him. And then you stand up and I would just tell you this, you spend the rest of your life figuring out what you just did. 
I mean, don't you? I mean, you spend the rest of your life cultivating that relationship, figuring out what it means and how to do it well, you know, to know him and to love him and to walk with him. It's a lifelong thing. It begins, it's declared. The day you put your faith in Christ, it begins, but it's a lifetime of realizing it. Just as marriage, it's declared. It's a lifetime of realizing what does it mean the two of you are one relationally and emotionally and spiritually and covenantally. And so you have to spend the rest of your lives, when I say realizing it, is growing and deepening in its experience. But what happens is often in a marriage is it, it's the opposite. Instead of it coming into birth, so to speak, and nurturing it, it's one of those things that gets neglected. When you took your vows, you promised to do things to nurture and protect the intimacy and the oneness at the center of your marriage. Life is going to happen. Work is going to happen. Children are going to happen. Busyness is going to happen. Running the kids around is going to happen. All of this stuff happens, and what, and what happens is that, that precious treasure at the center of the marriage just gets pushed out to the side like a log taken off the fire and lean there and it starts to smolder and go out. So when the kids are gone and you look around and say, where'd it go? Oh, there it is leaning against the wall, cold and, and that's kind of brutal, isn't it? So, so don't take the log off the fire, right? So keep it on the fire in the center. In other words, you have to deliberately fan the thing to flame, you know, pursue your spouse, pursue them in conversation, pursue them relationally, spend time for them, with them, go for walks with them and talk with them, ask them how it is with them, ask them spiritual questions, go out to dinner. If you've got kids, we had, we had kids, we had like, we had like this much money, but the only, th the one fun thing that we did is we got a babysitter every week and somebody told us when you get married, you need a date night. Praise be to God, somebody told me that. We did date night for 25, and we still do. It's not as structured as it was, but, but we did date night for like 25 years, you know, and even when we had no money, it was the one thing we paid for was to go have FaceTime with each other. You have to go after it. You have to pursue it. You have to fan it into flame. You have to nurture it. You have to want it. It's like a baby that was born at the wedding. It's like a spiritual, you know, you become a Christian, you're a baby, and it must grow and mature and deepen. And what you brought to the altar is like a baby that has to grow and mature and deepen. That relationship, that friendship should be stronger and more mature 20 years in than, than when it started, but so often it's gone. Why? The treasure that you built Fort Knox around. The best gift you could give to your children is a strong and happy marriage. So don't let your children, you know, so distract you from each other. They need to see you date. They need to see you talk. They need to see you relate. They need to see a healthy marriage. The best gift you can give to your children, first, is your thriving own personal relationship with Christ. And number two, is a thriving, healthy marriage that they can see and, and, and have a picture of as they grow up and contemplate it themselves. Let me close with these just two quick thoughts. And number one is this. For all of those applications of pursuing it, you need to know that your spouse cannot meet all of your emotional needs. Your spouse will not satisfy all of your needs. 
And, and it will be dangerous to your marriage to expect them to. No human being can meet all of our needs. If we put the full expectation uh, 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 and the weight uh, on our spouse to make us happy, we will smother and crush them. Right? So it's better to come to a marriage healthy, not needy, but full. Christopher Ash says, when we approach marriage expecting our needs to be met, we've not understood the real nature of love, and we're sowing the seeds of destruction in our marriages. If we come to marriage empty, demanding our spouse to satisfy us, we're like two broke people trying to buy a house, right? There's just not enough cash to make it happen, right? We're just not going to, we're not going to get there. Your spouse is not your savior, And we must not approach our marriages as takers, but as givers. And so I'll close just with the thought, the only way to do that is to live out of our oneness with Christ. Right? And I read a couple of those verses, I in you and you in me, and the one who abides in me will bear much fruit in their marriage. See, if you abide in him, you will bear much fruit in your marriage. What fruit? We'll start with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. As we live out of our daily relationship with him, where we are finding our fullness in Christ, and we're knowing him and loving him, and he's loving us, and we know that we're loved, and we know that we're secure, and we know that we're satisfied with the God who will never leave us nor forsake us, then I can come into my marriage not as a taker, but as a giver. I can come into my marriage and pursue oneness with my wife, not because I desperately need to suck her dry, but because I want to give to her and to build her up and to create a healthy thing. It is out of fullness, out of wholeness that we have in Christ that we can nurture oneness with our spouses. I believe the key to a healthy, growing marriage is to embrace the purpose of oneness. You must embrace it first with Christ because out of the fullness that we have in him, We have a fullness with which to build and to grow and to deepen into something, that beautiful, fragile thing becomes, I don't know, like rock, becomes strong, durable, and rich. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us and you have not left us alone, but that you have united us to your son, Jesus, by faith and trust in him. We thank you that in him we have all fullness, that in him we are satisfied, that in him we are rich. I pray, Father, that you will teach us to bring that richness home and to infuse and pour it into our marriages, that our marriages would be full of life and health and peace. Father, help us to protect our marriages and to protect our hearts, that we would be one woman men, and one man, women. Father, help us come near. Protect our marriages in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.